You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni out of Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh. Uh, Sam, a couple of nights ago, as I was working, was a story that is still occupying headlines here in the United States. And you would think a a random shooting where someone was killed is something that happens all the time, of course, uh, in Chicago. But this was Alec Baldwin. And Alec Baldwin was the producer and star of a film that he was producing in New Mexico. And because it seems the prop master that he hired uh, was not up to snuff, that's a bad term to use because somebody did get snuffed because of that. Uh, Alec holding the gun, not realizing that it had that type of ammunition, uh, aimed it in the direction and it fired off and killed his cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, who was shot. And she didn't die immediately like they die in the movies, but she actually bled out. And this was the top story. And I was thinking about this. I don't care that much about Alec Baldwin. But the idea of somebody, Sam, being involved in the death of someone else, accidental though it might be, uh, realizing as now the newspapers are all full of the negligence aspect, the fact that this was something that could have been prevented. This was something that if you would have hired the right people, if you would have been more self-aware of everything around you, living with the fact that although you didn't mean to murder your attitude and other things caused the death of another person. This is something that we in the Torah world are very familiar with. We have two parshias in the Torah that go into great length about the, the Rotseach who escapes to Ir Miklat. But I thought about you, Sam, because I thought about what it means to live with death on your conscience. What does it mean when if you're not Alec Baldwin, but you're a, a, a person who's been dealing with issues of drunk driving, and you actually got into a car driving drunk, and then killed someone. Of course, you might face, face criminal charges. But how do you ever go beyond the fact that someone's life was exterminated because of you? I'm not talking about people who, and I think who are murderers outright, professional killers. But I think this is a, an issue. Maybe it's it's part of what is now known as post-traumatic stress disorder, living with that. And I know you have dealt with issues similar to that. So give us, if I was Alec and I was, pretend I'm Alec and I'm reaching out to Sam Juni who I think can give me some sort of direction. He's not going to be my therapist, but at least give me some sort of sense of how I can continue to just keep on functioning. I keep on seeing the the death of that person in front of me. Okay, Sam, that's your, that's, that's, that's the order for today. All right. It's a tall order because I'm not going to start with Alec. I'm going to start with other Mauritians. Right. And um, and of course, after other Mauritian comes Freud. So let's just take it you know, in, in order of importance. Not really other Mauritian. Talk about Cain. Um, talk about the whole idea of killing someone, where that comes from, what it means to people. Um, so I want to start with basics. And 
assuming that, okay, let's put it this, I'm not taking into account any aspects of a person such as his uh, transcendent soul, soul, his or her connection to God, his having implanted um, God-like moral values, a la Kohlberg, if you're aware of that uh, theoretician, I'm assuming that um, you're born as a tabula rasa, right? So, which means you really have no compunctions at all. What you have are some basic drives. What are those basic drives? Um, one of them says try to stay alive. Um, it's possible that there is also an inborn fear of getting destroyed. Now, which is a motif to stay alive, and there's an anxiety, should we say, about getting destroyed or dying or getting hurt. And uh, those are not supposed to be, at least in terms of standard psychological thinking, those are not reducible. They don't come from anywhere else. Those are givens. If you want to categorize them, you can put them with the gag reflex or the blinking reflex. It's not thinking. You just get anxious from that. If you're in the situation, you take a little kid and you put him over a visual cliff, which means you have a floor and all of a sudden becomes glass and it seems like it drops down far down, the kid will get anxious and freeze. And nobody ever gave him, a, gave him or her a lecture about it. So that's a natural anxiety. Um, the idea about hurting someone is not something that's evident, at least empirically, as being inborn at all. Hurting someone, why not? I mean, you hurt a, any kid will crush a bug, hurt a fly. If you don't control them, put a couple of cats in the microwave, um, put a diaper pin through the baby's eyes. It doesn't matter. There's no compunctions. So the compunctions, again, I'm putting aside Shama, anything like that, because I don't, I, that's not my expertise. I'm also putting aside the psychological theory that's basically Kohlberg's moral development, which says that people mature and actually um, bring out within them some natural uh, tendencies towards morality, which I don't think is real. So I'm putting that aside. Um, so what happens then is that we ultimately, most of us, wind up as fairly functioning human beings with a decent sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong. Where does that come from? The understanding is that comes by intimidation. In other words, we have socializing agents like society, like parents, like whoever else is responsible for terrorizing kids. And ultimately, they say, well, if you do that, uh, it's going to happen to you or something else is going to happen to you. And usually it's not defined what's going to happen to you. If you do that, then, oh, I can't really make the right sounds. But it lets the kid know, better not do that. Now, that makes the kid very anxious because he's constantly looking over his shoulder. Well, if I do that, will this person, will I be caught? Will I be caught by the ogre, by the witch, whatever kind of symbols they use? So what happens is that for experience's sake, this part of the personality called the ego, it internalizes those things. Now, it's better that you yourself say to yourself, I am not going to hurt somebody badly. I'm not going to steal any cookies. I'm not going to lie because I don't want to do it. And it's almost some an opportunity comes up to steal a cookie or to hurt somebody or to steal something. You just say to yourself, I'm not doing it. And it's a reaction that's fostered by an association of anxiety. 
I'm not going to do it because it's going to make me anxious. Why will I be anxious? Because I absorbed all those stories or lies. It makes no difference. But you stop yourself from doing it. And ultimately, that internalized um, fear loses sight or loses, shall we, shall we say, memory of where it came from and becomes part of you. So what I'd like to say just from beginning that the idea about not doing something is never natural. In other words, if you are honestly speaking, and I would encourage you to do it, honestly speak to a two-year-old and say, would you like to kill your mother? I've done this, okay? I've done it with many disturbed two-year-olds, but I've done it for comparisons with some normal two-year-olds, okay? Very normal, and I know they're normal because they grew up to be great people, okay? And so the answer would be, if I do that, who's going to give me chocolate? Yeah. Who's going to put me to bed at night? I say, what if we get you somebody? Grandma's going to come or your aunt. Said, no, well, I don't know. It depends what. I said, what if she takes away your toy and grandma can come and substitute? Would you like to kill her? Sure. How will we do it? I have had suggestions putting her, you know, like under a big truck. And with an older kid, I had something putting her in the blender, um, feeding her poison. Um, putting a knife so she sits down the knife. These are normal kids, okay? By the time they get there, these five years old, six years old, seven year olds, they don't dare say that anymore. And if I suggest it to them, they'll say, you're a crazy man, you know, Uncle Shmiru, you're nuts, or whatever it is, okay? So that's how I see it as developing. Now, um, it stands to reason that if you do something horrible, like killing someone or whatever, you're gonna feel very anxious. And of course, if you wanna like analyze that anxiety seriously with someone, it's because you feel they're gonna get me. Who's they? I don't know, my mother, God, the devil, um, the Shadim, the Goyal Hadam, right? And the Torah sanctions it, right? If somebody kills, pure accident, somebody kills your, um, right. your relative, you can go hunt them down and kill them. And I almost go so far as to say that um, retribution is much more natural than hurting, than the, than the injunction against hurting. And of the injunction against killing, I think, is, comes from experience. Retribution, just in my own like psychosociological comparisons of all these various kinds of um, disturbed people I see, it seems implanted. Revenge. The adventure is something that's there. I found that interesting, you know, that many of our dying brethren, the Holocaust, Nakama, revenge, that's what they were thinking. Odd. I don't think I would be thinking that. I mean, again, I, I, was not, I did not go through this, you know. In, in, well, you're, in you're, not the, you're, you're not the first uh, Jewish doctor to uh, articulate that idea. It was actually articulated by Maimonides himself. Uh, yes. He says I, in... I'm sure you know this, but specifically Martin Buchum, when he talks about why the uh, there is this injunction uh, and and dispensation that allows the close relative of the person that was killed accidentally or not maliciously to take his revenge, is because he says the Torah could not legislate here. the The feeling mm-hmm. is so overwhelming that nomos or law cannot be applied here. Law can only be applied where there's a malleability in the person's psyche and his ability to shift and change. This is something that is so strong 
that it would be it would be fruitless to be able to, to, to want to legislate. Okay, let me just say that the truth is that Freud had various periods, and I am a student of his very early period. We have an interpretation for that as well, which makes it not as natural as you think, but a distortion from your own anxieties. But we don't have, let's not go there. What I want to say is that it's clear, let's say, to any perpetrator, especially a perpetrator who grew up learning Hamash, that it's not my fault, I didn't mean it, does not wash. Why doesn't it wash? It seems like, um, from my reading, I'm not so sure that we really believe this guy, or we say he's semi at fault. And I know the Gemara is saying that if it's totally not at fault, it doesn't apply. It's only if you're semi fault. But the point is, we don't believe him. But what's more important from our discussion is that the perpetrator doesn't believe it himself. The perpetrator sees himself as being guilty, with the caveat that even if he didn't mean it, he's still guilty because you're guilty. What does guilt mean? Guilt means devil's going to get you. Okay, and it's actually codified that the relatives are going to get you. And it's also codified that you need to have absolution from God for doing something like that. So clearly, either they don't believe you, or better yet, it doesn't matter. Or better yet, the whole thing doesn't make sense to begin with. Why am I being punished because I took a cookie from a jar? But what do you want from me? I took a cookie. Your cookie, my cookie, leave me alone. Why am I punished for killing someone? What's the deal? What are, what are you talking about? I did something. I wanted to do it. Either I was angry or because I wanted the guy's cookie, whatever it is. So there's nothing logical about this. All you can say is that it's implanted or it's not implanted. So I want to start with, just with this idea. So then it's almost like I'm flipping table here saying, so why? What do I have to deal with if somebody kills somebody by accident? What do you want from the dude? Or let's talk better. Let's talk about my situations, right? I recommend that somebody take a combination of two drugs, okay? It has a 20% chance of causing a heart attack, okay? In my mind, it's worth the chance. I would take the chance. I would take the chance for my kids, for myself, for my mom to do that because I figure it's much better than being horribly anxious and suicidal and psychotic and harmful to others and not being able to get out of the psych hospital. I advise it, right? And then people die. It's happened to me, okay? I don't feel personally anything. I am not prescribed. People have come to me and I've said, they said options. I said, do it. Okay. I should make the decision. I have no problem making decisions for people simply because my life is not on the line. I've made decisions through people where there are chances of horrible things happening. I have not always followed up because my style is I've been sending away. But statistically speaking, I have ended up hurting people in the name, at least officially in the name of trying to help them. So and they'll come and say, look what you did over here. I'll say, I did, and I would do it again. I know what the chances are. That's cool. But I, I personally can't get, since I'm so like, like, I breathe Freud, I can't get myself to feel guilty. And what I'm wondering is when you describe this, I definitely have seen many, many people, most people other than me, feel guilty for something having happened to them, especially somebody died because of them. What are you talking about? What are you so excited about? Now we have theological issues as well. Um, people, let, let's take the extreme. Let pe people who have no belief in any, anything non-physical, 
about the soul. They don't believe in the soul. They think a person is, is a behavioral machine or whatever. Do you feel guilty for shutting down the computer and selling it for parts? They don't feel guilty about it. They do feel guilty. Most of those people who don't believe in God and don't believe in anything, and, but they believe, of course, in, 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 in green environments, whatever, that's my cynical barb. They do feel guilty when because of them, somebody dies. And my question to them has always been, what's the difference? Why is this different than if you take away $5 from someone for tax? I mean, this is, person's gonna die anyway. Uh, he's a fancy computer with a lot of little programs and macros. What are you getting so excited about? So I'm starting from the negative with the knowledge that I am speaking about something that's almost universal truth. People feel terrible about hurting others. PTSD is a horrible sickness. You don't get out of it that easily, okay? And ultimately, the only therapy I know about, other than just drugging it out of people, is getting people to truly face the anxiety and realize that it was not, quote, their fault, which is very tenuous because I think, let's say, from an anthropological point of view, not being your fault doesn't mean anything. Let me give you an example, a little bit away from this, okay? Maisa Shehoya, right? Grandma died, right? You were three years old. You end up getting psychiatrically sick. Why do you get sick? Because the night before, you stole a cookie from the cookie jar. In your mind, you killed grandma, all right? The only way to get that to work is to actually, now you're very fear. What happened to cookie? First of all, you'll deny. The kid denies. I never stole the cookie. It's not true. And really doesn't believe they stole the cookie. And they have no idea why they're freaking out. If you get them to relax and play therapy, you hold them safely. You tell them, look, I'm here. Nobody's going to get you. It's fine. Let's talk about it. Let's play. They will play act out a scene where you go to a cookie and cookie jar. And then comes grandma's funeral. Okay? And then if they're relaxed enough, we analyze it and we say, okay, now that you're no longer three, okay, now that you're 54 or 22 or 18, do you understand that this is childish reasoning? And then he will say, yes, I do. And that's the road. He'll never be perfect, but that's the road to feeling much better because it's really not his fault. So obviously the idea of not being your fault is something we use unofficially because we realize it's very programmed into nature. But the notion itself, why do you feel bad that you killed somebody? Nothing logical there. Nothing logical there, especially if you didn't mean it. I didn't do anything. So I was, you know, it's like somebody, you know, the Gemara has the, the, the situation, like somebody takes someone and ties them up and uses them like a battering ram to kill someone. Okay, there's no guilt there. There is that's not even called chogeg, right? I was, I was a, a an instrument of someone else. You can be an instrument of chance. You can be an instrument of somebody else's mistake, but leave me alone, right? Guilt-wise, I can wash my hands. But then again, the bottom line is people do get traumatized, and if that's your starting point, if this was all my moseying around just to tell you where I'm coming from. But the issue is, yes, people okay. feel horrible if they are responsible for somebody dying. And it's very difficult to get over it psychiatrically. It ain't easy unless you're a psychopath. Psychopaths really never internalize all these ideas from the outside. Their idea is 
all these guys are full of it. They're all doing it for their own benefit. So I'm gonna play the game, but come on, I really don't care. And those are people really who don't get emotional. And we know those guys, these are ogres in history. You know, we've had recent genocides run by, by, by psychopaths who don't care, who don't okay. feel guilty. Okay. Let me start from the last point you said and work a little bit backwards. Okay, so let's start about the psychopaths. One thing that I've learned in my foray into the criminal justice reform issue is that many times the hiring of policemen and even people of great authority in the military, they look for a certain element of cruelty, a certain ability not to be affected by the norms that society places on them. Sometimes they are actually the ones who rise in the ranks because they don't become depressed and crumble when they have to kill. So you're correct that that label of psychopath marginalizes the idea, but we know that some people with the same sort of um, mental profile are actually occupying places of power in the positions they're at because they don't have that type of guilt factor. Oh, yeah. So what I wanted to interject is that, in fact, there is the psychological profiling that's done in hiring law enforcement. Uh, we use a test called the MMPI. I mean, by now we, we've tra transitioned to sec second generation of this, but the, the original MMPI has clinical scales for schizophrenia, depression, etc. And one of the scales that has is for psychopathy. And to be a successful police officer, you have to have a psychopathy scale, which is above the mean, above the mean. It's basically above a stand of 60, which means significantly above the mean, but not enough to label you as a psychopath, which means you need that to be able to function, to be able to dismiss a lot of um, normal guilt-inducing, um, and not not for killing, for any, for pushing people around, for uh, for asserting authority, for using force, but not high enough to be psychopathic, which means it minimizes the chances of you running apart. And I would add that Hitler himself, who was a psychopath, knew about this, and he basically came up with a a, a system to marginalize the SS killers. He knew that they could never really be functional soldiers again, because they would be like um, like suffused with all kinds of guilt about what they did. So uh, people are aware of this. Yes. Well. Yes. Well. Again, the Hitler reference actually goes the other way, which is that that despite the fact that you maybe want to empower someone whose whose psych level is a little bit higher, but if you keep on overloading it to the point that the actions that they're involved in are so overwhelming, even these uh, robotic-like leaders are going to lose it. Uh, are, they're not going to be uh, what you want. Especially because Hitler roboticized. It's not like, the, okay, there were many volunteers for killing. There's not, those are the real psychopaths. But Hitler also, they enlisted, the army enlisted many soldiers and made them be killers. And that eventually ended up pushing them beyond their comfort level. You know, if they were, the pure psychopaths had no problem. They were maniacs before right. that and maniacs after that. But many of those were not natural psychopaths. They were basically, shall we say, programmed, program, and there are ways to program people to de defy natural feelings like fear, 
or, or kinship or relationships. So they were programmed, but ultimately he knew they would they would burn out because the guilt would get the better of them. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Even and of course, you know, tapping into as uh, Goldhagen and others have talked about this sort of Germanic uh, anti-Semitism that was so prevalent. Uh, it wasn't like the you know it was it was sort of easy to find those, especially when most of the victims had been uh, considered less than human. One of the right. things that I, I think I told you in a previous conversation was uh, came out from Lanzmann's uh, epic interview that turned into the incredible film Shoah was that the members of the SS and the ones that were working uh, in this extermination machine, they really uh, almost maniacally insisted that their victims were not human. They would beat mercilessly the Jewish capos or the Jewish uh, underlings that needed to clean out the crematoria who would refer to these uh, people as Kedoshim or Korbonos. They would call them Korbonos or Kedoshim. The Nazi, when, when the Nazis heard that, they would beat the, the, uh, the, the poor lackey who was schlepping these, these bodies out and say, you cannot call them Korbonos. You can't call them Kedoshim. You have to call them Drek. You can't, they, call them people, you can't call them people either. You can't call them people. They cannot even, they, for sure they can't be martyrs, elevated ones, but you have to refer to all of this as Drek, as excrement that needs to be cleaned. And if they, mm-hmm. if they heard the victims, cousins, brothers, co-religionists re- referring to them in any sort of humanistic way, they couldn't stand it because otherwise they wouldn't have been able to continue to mm-hmm. keep on uh, putting people into gas chambers and killing them. So uh, clearly, uh, whether this is a, uh, a learned response or not, there's something even that the German Volk had and every little mother, as you say, or, or whoever it is that instills into this child that anxiety. But that anxiety is about the importance of human life. And even though this might be something that you, you will say, Sam, is not part of your inherent being and it's something that needs to be drilled into you, it still is, you will admit, a very important uh, motif, a very important value to live by, and a very important one for society to function in a way that we give each other space. If we don't, sure. if we don't have that morality anxiety drilled into us, then we end up pushing people off of the highway. Uh, uh, people are, are 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 elbowing others uh, in the middle of the street, and in general. There isn't a civility that allows for a normal functioning society to happen. So let let me share something personal, okay? So in the medical field, including the psychiatric field, um, doctors, practitioners have to become hardened, almost like a Hebra Kadisha person you have there, okay? Because you will deal with issues where you have to lay aside your sympathies, your empathies, and say, how am I going to do this? Okay? The Gemara says the best doctor deserves execution. Okay? Um, I have had um, a number of doctors referring to me to give diagnostics where it was very clear to me that the doctor knew what their diagnosis was. 
and I would say, why are you wasting these people's money? Why are you sending them to me? And they said, I don't have the heart to tell them. You can. I'm supposed to be this cold, unfeeling person. And I tell you, I found myself, I remember when I, at the beginning, my first internships, when I worked on psychiatric wards, and I would meet people that if I would not have put on an armor, would have devastated me. You know, sometimes I met, I remember meeting a sister of a girlfriend of mine, okay, on the ward, okay, and she was not doing well. I remember meeting just regular people who were falling apart. And in a sense, there is a hardening process that goes on. You have to learn to just ignore or suppress some of your um, automatic feelings of sympathy and empathy, which will then get in your way of judgment. Question is, do you or don't you do this? I mean, do I tell someone they have to have shock therapy? If you've seen electric shock therapy, not from the patient's point of view, by the way, because they get unconscious, from the outside point of view, it looks like the most gruesome punishment you can find in these horror novels, okay? And I've told people, do this. I've told family members, this is the right thing to do. And it requires a certain amount of hardening on my part to be able to do it. And this is why often we find surgeons. Many people find surgeons to be cold, um, automatons and whatever. And I'd say, you probably don't want someone to say, ooh, Terrible blood. I, this is terrible. We have to stop this right away. No, no, we're going to have some more bleeding going on over right. here. Right. Some, some, right. I, I was going to mention surgeons before because in the situations where I, our family was uh, looking for a surgeon, I was always told you want a surgeon to be a little bit of an SOB because he has to have the, uh, the courage and, and belief in himself as well. And, and the ability to suppress part of himself that takes a lot of guts. Yeah. And and and, and normally because you watch them at home, they're pretty good fathers or husbands or children. So they are you're you're saying that these people we talked about uh possibly detectives and, and policemen and uh commanders in armies, and now we're talking about surgeons. You want to say that despite that they're sort of pushed a little bit beyond the normal anxiety slash guilt sense of what their actions might do, they are able to shift into family sympathetic mode other times in their lives. So they have that balance. I would also say those that have a significant amount of psychopathy probably do better because they're not distracted by considerations other than I'm going to do a good job, I'm going to get a good reputation, I'm going to get a lot of referrals, et cetera, et cetera. And they almost treat it like a business investment. I mean, the, the best business investor is not your uncle. It's somebody who's cold and calm and collected, or maybe even a shark who wants to get the most back for his uh, constituents. So he gets gets the best commission. The surgeons also, surgeons who are, see themselves as, hey, I'm a mechanic. I got this thing about doing a perfect job. I'd go to him or her. So you believe the best surgeons also are not... Uh plagued by the ghosts of the patients who oh, oh, have sure. died under their knife in the operating room. Precisely, and they should not be because then their next at, their next uh, surgery will be a horrible failure. Of course not. The idea is I've made up my mind. This is what I'm doing. Okay, it's just like, you know, you can call it almost like a, let's say, a, 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 a cold and heartless principal who says, I'm going to kick this kid out of school. Right? Hey, he's going to end up doing X. So I've decided 
either that it's not good for him or her to be in school, or that he will cause harm to love our children. That's my decision, knowing that yes, there will be some negative repercussions here. Yes, the dentist who pulls your tooth knows it's going to hurt, it's going to bleed, or whatever. Now, if they're not honest, like I've had recently, unfortunately, in my own skin, they don't tell you the whole story. But if they need to tell you the story, you say that's the story, and I'm doing it anyway. Okay, so yeah. two, so two points. Clearly, uh, you want competence, and you don't want someone who is fumbling and is struggling with the anxiety because they have to do their job. But when an act, something occurs that they didn't expect to happen, doesn't it mean, isn't it proper that they should examine what they did again and think that perhaps there was a mistake on their part that they can correct next time? The severity of what occurred causes a reconsideration of at least that event. It puts it under their mental scrutiny and can make them discover a flaw that might pop up again and again. Let me go take okay. this one. Let me take this one, know, one, one, one. Next time, you're saying next time. I don't think that's real. I think people who are plagued and examine things examine it because they're trying to absolve themselves of some guilt or to see whether they did something wrong, they're not really worried about next time. They'll feel just as bad if there was no next time. And now it's really the past they're trying to reprocess and recreate and, and clothe up. And sure, I am admitting to you that um, people are accepting that people feel horrible about hurting others. Most people feel horrible. And that that's basically there, whether you want to call it implanted by God, implanted by nature, implanted by Darwin, implanted by ogre socializers, it's there. And it's very natural to try to go over and over it because the guilt will not leave you alone. And you'll go over it and you'll get nowhere. That's unfortunately the conclusion. You get nowhere except to being able to get the right medications or the right... Uh, okay, so I, I, I want to push back on two levels. Number one, I don't think that's going to go nowhere. They might discover, let's say, for example, there was a camera in the operating room and the person who operated and the person died on the operating table. The doctor feels that they want to watch the camera, which showed everything that happened. And the doctor notices that there was a scalpel or something that they could have taken. The doctor notices that that there was a certain moment of inattention where they could have been quicker in terms of stimulating the heart. The doctor didn't remember that because it, he pushed it out of his mind. Everything was so shocking. But then watching the film slowly allows the doctor to realize the type of mistake that they made and can somehow see, hmm, have I been doing that? Have I been distracted at that moment? Once I get the heart out, I've been sort of checking my watch and checking my phone during that time. What hubris I had. And, and then the doctor can go back to films that, that happened in previous occasions. And the doctor noticed that. Now, all those other occasions, nobody died. But this time, someone did. And now the doctor can realize that there is something to correct. Let me take it one more step further. You mentioned before about the vengeance aspect of what the Torah talks about. And I gave you uh, the Rambam's justification for it. But what I didn't talk about, and you refrain to mention because it's not your bread and butter, is the fact that the, uh, as we call him, the Roseach, the same term we use for any sort of killer, right? The Torah calls this Shogeg, this person who didn't mean to kill, but killed anyway, we call him, we give him very stark term for him, Roseach. But that's not what I want to get to. I want to talk about 
what happens to this Rotseach, this killer? He goes to a, uh, basically, a, 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 a one of a 48 cities where a reclamation project occurs. He's not put behind bars, although he can't leave the city, but he isn't stopped from what he wants to do. Nobody forces him to go to sleep at a certain time. He actually is in a, a pleasant atmosphere. He can't escape because he, he might risk his life, but actually he's talked to and he's actually involved with who the Torah considers the most enlightened, uh, interesting people to talk to, the Levites, the Leviim, who, who speak to him. And he, he, he actually goes through a therapy. He thinks about what he's done. Now, he does have, obviously, he shows up there out of nowhere, and he has to announce, I'm a person who did this. But they, they're used to dealing with that. And they give him work to do. And he, 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 he recalibrates himself. And the purpose of that is not to punish him and not for him to be stoked with guilt as much as it is to think about his life and to think about the change that he needs to uh, engender. Let me, let, let me say it clearer. When you realize that because you were talking on your cell phone, because you're in your car and you use your car to make phone calls, even though it's hands-free, but because of the energy and excitement you have in these phone calls, which can be long and drawn out, you end up not realizing who's crossing in front of you in a crosswalk and hitting that person and killing them. That showed you something, that you were too much involved in yourself, that you had a hubris, that you believed that what you're doing is more important. You didn't realize that you're driving a a 3,000-pound car that even at 30 miles an hour is a killing machine. And when you go to the Ir Miklot, you become, by speaking to the Levites, by being in a different place, you come to re-examine aspects of your life and what your life has been. Now, you're right. Maybe it's been imposed. This morality has been imposed by some rabbi or some mother. But the, the, the significance of human life and the fact that it led you to, to take that life means that there's a certain selfishness and a certain pushiness, a certain sense of entitlement that you need a big process to change. And I think that's what the, that's really the bigger thing and the novel thing that the Torah really wants to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- what's your response to that? Really wants to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- what's your response to that? Okay. I, I want to just come out of left field, Okay. Um, I know that I'm not perfect, okay? I think that I'm probably close to the best diagnostician somebody should go to. I know that I'm going to make mistakes. I also know that some of the mistakes are due to quirks that I have that are probably based on transference to old things. I know that sometimes I waver a little and I have to watch myself. I still think that I'm probably very good at this, okay? So I'll tell you what I'm relating to. There's a show I've been watching on TV called The Good Doctor, okay? So The Good Doctor is about a, um, he's basically a resident who happens to be autistic, okay? And he focuses in on small little details and often comes up with the solutions and surgery that nobody ever would, okay? But, but, so there's a big, a big fight with supervisors whether to let them on to certain kinds of surgeries or not. And the view that the show tries to push and ultimately prevails is that it's worth it. 
In other words, sometimes because of his crank, he will sometimes, something will jerk something off within him and he'll focus in and just lose attention totally in the middle of a difficult procedure. So somebody has to pitch in and take over from him. But the point is when you take it all together, the chances of making it via him is much higher than making it via someone else who does not have his profound skills but also does not have his mishagasm or his distractors, which cause him to go wrong. So what I'm saying here is as follows, and this is it's peculiar, but I, it's idiosyncratic, not peculiar. Everybody has their limitations. Let us say that you are ADD and you cannot go a half hour without checking the phone, blinking, shaking your head or, or disengaging and coming back. But you're still the best one out there as compared to some other people who may not have these vagaries, but have other kinds of vagaries. Would you, okay, would you as a supervisor invalidate somebody like that saying he can't be on here because he has this? Everybody has something, all right? And then to push it further yet, does, do I, assuming I have these vagaries that do cause occasional problems, do I then say that I'm going to disqualify myself from providing a phenomenal service that I can provide just because there are occasional blips or statistical blips or likelihoods of failure and rather say, okay, I'm withdrawing, let somebody else do it and let it be somebody else's mistakes. I might feel less guilty, but I'm not helping anybody with that, especially if in my case, we will have, let's say, a 0.5% fallout. And with the other guy, you'll have a 2% fallout. All right, so I, I'm just trying to say, the easiest thing is to say you succumb to guilt. You succumb to morality and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to leave it up to somebody else. Is that the right thing? I mean, you're a, somebody who knows how to get many people in danger out by driving a bus. But you have certain problems with vision versus another guy who never drove a bus in his life. So, sure, I drive that bus and I end up hurting people. I'll feel guilty. I would say, I, Junie, I would not feel guilty. It's a way decision. If I had to do it again, I would say that. And if it was somebody else, if I don't know how to drive at all and somebody else has a 2% chance of killing people, I'd say, you do it, mister. But there's a 2% chance. I'll take responsibility for it. Do it. So, when you personalize this to the point of saying you're really looking out for your own brittle ego, you don't want to feel guilty. You'd rather leave it on to other people who are much less competent, who cause much less harm. I think there's an illogical break there. Okay, I understand this is idiosyncratic, but it comes from my experience. Trust me. I, I, I respect it. I think, however, coming from our world, a world that we both shared, when a death occurs, especially a death of, uh, that we would call an, uh, a, a death that was unnecessary of a young person, uh, of a Haley Hutchins, a 42-year-old cinematographer, maybe at the top of her game that we started with. We who believe, like you say, in the sanctity of life and a soul, see this as messages from God, that God who is aware of everything that occurs and in a way is the prime mover of everything that happens realizes that uh, through you and you saw the direct connection the gun was handed to you you're the one that hired the prop master you're the one that was sitting there and whatever you were saying i don't want to i don't know exactly what happened there and in your mind and in the experience that you saw 
the uh, a death occurred, and this is something, as we know, is 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 as you mentioned before, uh, obliquely referencing the Talmud when when it talks about if if people tie you up and throw you on somebody, right? Uh, which is the extreme case. The the case the Talmud is really talking about is a case where you have been given a gun or some sort of weapon. And some overlord is telling you, I want you to be the assassin of this person. Otherwise, I'm killing you, right? And in that case, the Talmud actually rules. And I know this is something that you don't agree with uh, from, a, from, a, from a psychological perspective. You have to let them uh, slaughter you rather than actually taking the gun and, and shooting the person. Because you have no right to do, to pull that trigger, even though you're about to be killed and someone has a knife and is going to cut your throat this minute according to the Talmudic law according to the Torah law you cannot take another life and whether it's the story of of, of Cain and Hevel or any other sort or the story of Menashe later in, in, in the Bible this is a, 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 an issue that we don't just see as a program we see it and when you when this happens to you you're expected from my perspective to think, wow, I caused the death of a person. God allowed me to see that and experience that. There, this is something that has to be an overwhelming change in my life. And, and, and I think, therefore, from you might call it the Jewish Christian guilt syndrome, but I think it's, it's, it's all over the Torah. <laughs> and I think that, that, that in fact, the, the, the post can speak about situations where you send someone on a trip for you and because of uh, on that mountain pass that you sent him an avalanche occurred and the, and you and, and the person died the post can speak about the chuva that you have to do because mm-hmm. uh, you can see the direct line between the money you paid him and the trip that he took on the matterhorn that killed him and there's this type of chuva that the a type of penance uh, that you have to that has to happen. I mean, what you're suggesting, Sam, last week. You... Let me give you two examples, okay? Um, I I remember one particular case um, where I had a cousin who showed up suddenly in the United States, a 12 year old who um, was having like a incurable brain surgery, and there was an experimental surgery available at NYU where I was, and they show up. This was Thursday morning. They don't know anything about medicine. They don't even speak English. They had a charity bring them in. Um, here's the proposal by this guy, an assistant professor at NYU. He wants to do this kind of surgery. Um, Shmilo, you tell us whether we should do this or not. Okay? Not my field. Not my field. Okay? I spent like a good part of the night at the library at Downside Medical Center going through stuff. And I came back the next day and I said, do it. Okay? I was taking a chance. I was using the best of my judgment. Um, I'm telling you the story because it worked out very well. Okay. Um, let me just, um, yeah, I had somebody else. This was a colleague. Okay. A colleague of mine, very good psychologist, vocational psychologist, whose husband was dying of a brain tumor. Okay. She heard about some experimental program. I mean, I'm the one who knows my statistics. Sam. What am I supposed to do here? Okay, the idea was this could either cure you or kill you. All right, again, went to downstate, spent a long time. I came back and said, Joan, 
I think it was a good chance to do it. The guy got, like, she was ever thankful. I think he got 12 or 13 years out of his life because of that. Okay? I'm telling you these stories. I am certain there are other stories that are similar that don't have similar endings. Okay? I just now, in retrospect, with all the ideas of people who like to lie to themselves, I can't say I would have felt guilty had that not worked out. Let's say if that child, you know, had died, okay, my cousin, okay, I, would people have had tightness to me? Maybe. I would not have had any tightness to myself. I used the best in my judgment. I figured I saw how many cases I worked for, similar ages, similar kind of body weight, and I did it. And ditto with the, um, with, with that colleague of mine who I steered into something that, I mean, I know that members of my family who do this kind of research that it either cures you or kills you, okay? I, and I would hope like my family relatives don't feel guilty that they're doing the best, they're playing the odds, and that's what they're presenting themselves as Jimmy the Greek in a white coat. So yes, would I have to then uh, go through an absolution in terms of theology? Yes, because you can say uh, from a theological point of view, God made me do this because I'm a damn killer anyway, because in my previous cycle or in my alter ego, I'm an evil person. But I can say I did a good job. I would not have a problem sleeping. I don't think I'd have a problem sleeping at night. Maybe I'd get some nervous tics that I can't attribute to or get an ulcer. So I understand you from a theological point of view, I can justify it. I just want to say the theological view is a little bit suspect to me because I know cultures that are just as old as Judaism, who don't have the theological component, who still heap loads of guilt onto hapless perpetrators okay. without the logic. Okay, okay, Sam, you know, you inserted, and, and it's sort of unfair because you used yourself, which of course I'm, not, I'm never gonna attack you yeah, personally, right. <laughs> but, but, you you also, but you also inserted a straw man because I, the cases that I talked to you, we started with Alec Baldwin. I invented a, a, a drunk driver. I talked about the person who is, uh, who is distracted on his phone. All of those cases are firmly and completely different than the person who gives medical advice that went awry. And very different even from the surgeon who has a wonderful track record who made a, who this punctured or at this time the patient went into cardiac arrest. Those are all so different than where it was your carelessness that led to the the the, the direct death. All the things Absolutely. That, you're right. 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 And, and and not and, and therefore the message from the creator, the way I'm looking at it, is a very different one. That is a message because of its immediacy, because it was your hand, because it was your you were behind the wheel, because it was your foot on the accelerator that pushed and barreled into that person and 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 and, and ended the life. It it you need to examine, you need to feel it, you need to own up to it. And that's but can you push that to the example you gave? Uh, where the, I think he's quoted the Talmud that you send someone on a mission and some avalanche happens. Is it because you didn't think of the avalanche? Oh, second, that's, wait, wait, I, I mentioned that. That also calls for tshuva, not necessarily the same tshuva. That also means you're right. That isn't it, it, it isn't as stark. It does call for consideration. How did it happen? Yes. So I agree with you. There's 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 clearly gradations. And you're correct, Sam, that once we start with the uh, Alec Baldwin, we might end up with Sam Juni as well, feeling terrible. You're correct. That's, that's what my argument is trying to stop. Because I yes. have no 
need to be, okay. have a sleepless night. I yeah, like so, to sleep. Right, right. So I would say that one could definitely make that difference. Um, and, 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 you're right. There are going to be people that are going to uh, agitate themselves, even when, like in your case, why I gave this advice. Uh, I gave the advice. It was because of me that they went under the knife. It was because of me. They took this uh, experimental treatment and they ended up dying. And you're correct. One could uh, uh, you know, beat themselves about that and wonder why was it that God allowed that to happen? I agree with you. But the, but that's really different than the case that we start. Uh, To me, I think that part of what one can do, and I'm just shooting from the hip here, if one is found in this situation, is to get out of themselves, is to a support group of others who have killed in the line of duty, uh, or others who have... A killer support group. To me, one of the... Association of the Guilty. Yeah, the worst hell, Sam, is what you can do for yourself. You agree, right? A person who's locked into himself. Yep. Even if it means going to some morose meeting where everybody is talking about the child that they uh, bowled over when they were drunk or the, 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 the innocent victim that was hit by a bullet in, in a gunfire that they were involved in. I think speaking to others allows you to put these things into perspective without necessarily eliminating the God aspect, without eliminating the significance of the soul. I think part of that is also that the harrowing picture, if you look at any terrorized three-year-old, a 40-year-old, or even any adult who has transmitted some horrible thing, committed some horrible thing, is that I am the only one. I'm the worst one. There has never been anybody like me. And now you find out, yes, there are a couple of thousand people online just like you who feel just as guilty, but somehow it doesn't feel as onerous. Maybe that's not a good good thing, but it doesn't feel as onerous, especially when you get to the point where you have the tax cheats who say everybody does it. Right, but it's really, as you say, finding out that you are not a monster, finding out that there's others and, 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 and we can always look at the other, even though we're selfish, we can look at the other with sympathy because we don't know them internally as, as, bad, as much as we know ourselves. And I think that, in a way, can be a salve. I don't know if Alec is going to be going to any support groups. He doesn't strike me as the type. He, he should. He really should. <laughs> if he wants to avoid treatment, he really should. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. Sam, thanks for your time today. We'll t- catch you next time. Uh, take take care. care. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.